Welcome to Safe Dividend Investing's podcast number 81 on September 14th of 2022. In addition to answering the usual five questions from investors, I will again be reading from Chapter 11 of my first investment book, Income and Wealth from Self-Directed Investing. Chapter 11 is titled, On Being Frugal. A dollar saved is a dollar earned. Question number one. Would investment professionals support legislation which would ban retail participation in stock trading to protect self-directed investors from their own ignorance in this domain? The financial industry thrives on the ignorance of retail investors who are encouraged to place their wealth in the hands of investment advisors. The chances of disrupting this fleecing of the sheep is just about nil. Stopping the fleecing of the masses has no interest to high finance professionals. Many benefit from it. It would be like banning lotteries and casinos It is not about to happen. Question number two. Are high dividend payments a warning sign? A warning sign of what? How high is a high dividend? What a company pays out in dividends has nothing to do with share price. The two are only remotely connected. Share prices are determined by speculators bidding on stocks. Dividends are derived from profits, which are not controlled by speculators, but by the skilled, experienced managers of a company. Therefore, when you see a $50 stock that was paying a dividend of $2.50, or 5%, drop down to $20 a share, the $2.50 dividend does not automatically change. The only thing that changes is the dividend percent, which is just a number. The percent would mathematically increase to 12.5%. When a company pays a dividend, it is an indication that it has the surplus funds to weather a downturn in the economy. However, The total score for a business is the deciding factor, not the dividend payout alone. You will see in the charts in my books many companies paying dividends of 20% or more who overall scores poorly. When you investigate these companies closely, you may find that the high dividend was a one-time thing, perhaps used as a way for the major shareholders to get their money out of the company, teetering on the edge of insolvency. In such cases, the operating margin and the book values of the companies may be close to zero. When you see dividends that appear to be too high, you must wonder if the management sees little benefit in reinvesting their profits in the company. Traditionally, Many financially strong companies pay 40% of their operating margin in dividends. 
and use the other 60% to maintain the company and strengthen it. Thus, be wary of too high a dividend combined with low operating margins, low book values, and other signs of weakness. Be especially wary if the company with a low operating margin is borrowing money to maintain their dividend payouts. This is sometimes done to stop share prices from dropping. The sweet spot in high dividend investing is a stock paying between 6 and 9%. I have found it interesting the amount of blowback I get from investors and blue chip stocks who claim that a company cannot possibly be financially strong and pay a 6% dividend. The blue chip stocks they invest in often have share prices exceeding $100 and rarely, if ever, pay a dividend greater than 2%. By necessity, this turns investors into buy low, sell high speculators because trying to survive on a 2% dividend when inflation has averaged 3.5% for more than the last 100 years is a losing proposition. There are many financially strong, smaller companies paying 6% or more. Question number three. Would we be better off if the stock market did not exist? In North America, there are roughly about 22 million businesses. Only about 16,000 companies are public companies traded on a stock exchange. Private limited companies are allowed to have a limited number of shareholders. Proprietorships and partnerships make up a large portion of the 22 million businesses. All a stock market does is make it easier and faster to finance and grow companies. Profit-seeking companies would still exist no matter how commerce was organized. An argument could be made that limiting the size of companies would make them much more in tune with the needs of employees and customers. A small, smart, nimble company can usually run circles around a lumbering bureaucratic giant of a company. A chief executive who knows the names of all employees can make better business decisions. Apparently, this chief executive of a corporation can know the names of all employees up until they reach 500 employees. Since the stock market fosters the growth of corporations employing hundreds of thousands, it could be argued that society as a whole might be better off if stock markets did not exist. There's nothing particularly wonderful about working for a company employing thousands of people. To the wealthy executive in a giant corporation, you are just a disposable, easily replaceable number. Question number four. Are corporate stock buybacks a gimmick? Do they create value? From the mid-1930s until the 1980s, 
buybacks were not allowed. They were seen as a form of stock manipulation. The Republicans, under pressure from their corporate benefactors, got rid of that Depression-era law. They are a gimmick to put money in the pockets of the corporate executives. The executives are given stock option bonuses that allows them to buy stock in the company at a low fixed price at a future date. The fixed option price has to be lower than the future share price or the stock options are worthless. To ensure they make money, the chief executive officer, who gets stock options, proposes to his buddies on the board of directors that instead of paying a big chunk of the company profits to shareholders as dividends, that they should take that big chunk and buy shares of their own company on the open market. This will create the illusion that the shares are in general demand and increase the share price. The executives will each make thousands of dollars in the difference between their option price and this newly inflated share price. Capital gains are taxed much more lightly than salary. If a shareholder who wanted a dividend complains, the chief executive will snow them with a spiel about the benefits of the shareholder will realize in capital gain and how it is a tax-efficient way to reward executives rather than paying them a higher salary or some other form of compensation. They also give the BS argument that there was no better investment available than buying their own shares. The only problem with this argument is that the unhappy shareholder also has to sell their shares to realize the capital gain, which they may not want to do. Since the share price is being manipulated, how long the higher price will hold is questionable. This can turn value investors into speculators who feel forced to sell. The other problem is after they stop buying shares, the money that was used was not spent in improving the company's operations or efficiencies, nor were loyal shareholders encouraged to keep their shares by receiving a good dividend. The stock can start to revert back to a lower price once the executives have cashed in their stock options. The executives who are now richer may now move on to another company. The company is now less competitive. Future profits may suffer. Usually, it is a large company that are doing buybacks. To me, it is not that dissimilar to the pump and dump schemes to rip off investors that are used in penny stocks to inflate share prices before dumping them and leaving gullible investors holding almost worthless stock. Question number five, a quick one. How can I invest if I have no money? Become a financial advisor. Invest other people's money. Make sure you invest their money so that you can maximize your commissions and fee income.
That was such a short question that I have another bonus question, number six. What if I, as a speculative investor, come across a company that has huge potential but is not listed on the stock market? It is only a matter of time before they become the next big thing. What would you advise? I would take their unique idea, approach other investors, and sell them on the potential. Open a competing company and get it listed on the stock market. If you don't do it, you can be assured if it is the next big thing that someone else will do it. Your belief in its potential could be your big opportunity in life. The only constant in capitalism is competition. Reading from chapter 11, the chapter is entitled on being frugal, and this item is automobile expense. Each vehicle you own could be costing you $8,000 or more a year. Insurance, fuel, parking, repairs, car payments, licensing, and maintenance. The interest on car loans is now averaging about 5% per annum. Can you cut back to one car? Using Uber, walking, and public transportation could save you thousands of dollars. If you do need a second car, look for a low-mileage, small, well-maintained, second-hand, fuel-efficient vehicle. Pay a mechanic to check this used car to make sure you're not purchasing one that will soon require expensive repairs. A new car loses about 20% to 30% of its purchasing price as soon as you drive it off the dealer's lot. Let someone else take the depreciation loss. With the money you have saved in buying a used car, you will be able to keep the car in good repair. To get the ultimate return on your investment in a car, plan on keeping it until it accumulates 200,000 kilometers. Pamper your car. Avoid unnecessary use of it. Plan your trips. Do all your errands at once. Number two, accommodation expense. If you are spending over 40% of your income on accommodation, then you are, might be classified as house poor. If you are in such a situation, consider selling your existing home and buying a more affordable residence. Apply the equity you might gain in the sale of your unaffordable house to paying off debts and building your investment portfolio. The sooner you become debt-free and have a portfolio that is generating investment income, the quicker you will achieve the goal of financial independence. With a smaller house, your monthly expenses will shrink. For example, lower taxes, heating, cooling, maintenance, services, and insurance costs. To minimize commuting costs, live close to your work or close to a major public transportation corridor. If you are no longer working or have a job 
that allows you to work remotely, consider relocating. Living in a large city is expensive. The average price of a small home can easily exceed $600,000. To rent a modest apartment can exceed $2,000 per month. Moving to a small town may be a viable option. There are many towns where you can buy a nice house for less than $100,000. An extreme example would be Elliott Lake, Ontario, a town of 11,000 people in northern Ontario where you can buy a well-maintained condominium apartment for less than $50,000. While moving to a distant town away from family and friends can be unappealing, living with a mountain of debt is also stressful and unhealthy. The cost of maintaining social contact with distant family and friends through electronic media has become very affordable. Number three, electronic communication expense. Cable television, satellite television, telephone, and internet access can cost thousands of dollars annually. If you must have cable or satellite television, negotiate with your suppliers. Play one supplier against the other. Never accept the first price they offer for their services. Tell them their competitors are offering almost the identical service for a third less. This is often enough for them to find a way around your price objection. Electronic communications are one of the few expenses that seem to get better and cost less each year. Check with your current supplier every six months to see if a better deal is available. Technology is transforming and reducing costs. Do not assume the price you are now paying is one with which you should be satisfied. Every year, many suppliers will sneak in a small price increase. They know that a certain percentage of customers will neither notice nor challenge the increase. Do not expect to be notified of any price decreases that are available. You must ask for them. You have internet service. It is debatable whether you still require cable television service. Online streaming services such as Netflix and Amazon Prime are good entertainment alternatives. Hundreds of internet news services can keep you fully informed and will even customize the news to your specifications. Online telephone services can reduce telephone costs. Consider buying a phone service like Magic Jack. I purchased this service from my business line and they gave me five years of service for a flat fee of $165. Not only can I phone anyone in North America without any additional charge, but I can communicate with anyone in the world who also has the Magic Jack service without any additional charge. When I travel abroad, the phone service travels with me. It is immediately activated as soon as I plug it into an internet modem on my laptop. This gives me free North American phone service no matter where I am in the world. 
books. Buying printed books, newspapers, and magazines can be expensive. Buy electronic publications that can be read on tablets, e-readers, and computers. A mountain of e-books is available for free or for less than $5. Example, 100 great novels you should read before you die for 99 cents. Many public libraries now provide free access to e-books. However, the restrictions on accessing their e-books may make them less attractive a reading source than Kobo or Kindle. For a few dollars, you can often buy the book you want from these ebook distributors. There are enough hours available in a day to access all the free news services. Not only can you eliminate cable television service, but printed newspapers and magazines as well. Number five, tobacco, coffee, and alcohol. Tobacco, coffee, and alcohol consumption can be pleasurable and a social habit. However, they are not a necessity. If you can eliminate or reduce their consumption, you may not only be saving thousands of dollars annually, but banishing habits that are not contributing to good health. Dropping a lifetime habit is never easily done. Number six, vacations. If you must go deeply into debt to go on vacation, then you should question whether you can afford such a vacation. Everyone needs a break from their normal routine. Can you plan a vacation that will minimize your debt, not increase it? Trading houses with someone in another country for a few weeks is a possibility. Traveling by car to explore a city you never previously explored can save the thousands of dollars in flight expense and be an interesting escape from your routine. On achieving financial independence, your whole life can become one extended vacation. You will then have the freedom to travel to a foreign country for several months instead of for only a week or two. I found the travel costs for several months of vacation can be equivalent to what I used to spend on a two-week vacation. Thanks to the internet, you can manage your money from almost anywhere in the world. Many friends with whom you now primarily communicate by telephone or email will not realize that you are away. That's all for this session. Next week, we will begin with non-residency costs. Thanks for listening. If you wish more information on investing and stock scoring, please visit my website www.saferbetterdividendinvesting.com